Revelation chapter 16 is a dark chapter situated in the midst of a very dark section of Scripture. The section spanning from Revelation 14 through 20 is filled to the brim with blood, anguish, terror, death, judgment, fire, and wrath. Follow along with me if you will. Let's take just a brief survey of this section. Look at chapter 14 verses 9 through 11. And you will see the third angel declaring, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. If you are here this morning apart from Christ, you should know that there is no rest from the relentless wrath of God for eternity upon your soul. Chapter 14, verses 17 to 20, another angel is sent out to harvest the wicked of the earth like grapes. And he casts them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Chapter 14, verse 20, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, or about 185 miles. Chapter 15, in verse 2, John sees the saints standing beside the sea of glass which is now mingled with fire, which is the smoldering ruins of the earth in the aftermath of the Lord's judgment. Chapter 16, seven bowls filled with the wrath of God are relentlessly poured one after the other upon the wicked of the earth resulting in global death and destruction. Chapters 17 and 18, John sees Babylon, the emblematic world city, pictured as a tawdry prostitute who is drunk with the blood of the saints, and he sees her suddenly laid waste by the ferocious wrath of God. Chapter 18, verse 8, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, John sees the Lord Jesus Christ return to earth as a warrior riding a white horse and his robe is dipped in blood and he has a sharp sword proceeding from his mouth with which he will strike down the nations. And when he comes, according to John, verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God the Almighty. And by the time that the battle is over, you see Jesus standing upon the battlefield surrounded by the corpses of His enemies. And the rest, verse 21, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Him who was seated seated on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And in chapter 20, when the nations gather together for war against the saints... Fire falls from heaven to consume the adversaries. The devil, the beast, and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And Christ sits upon His throne to judge all the earth. By the end of chapter 20, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain was also cast into the lake of fire. In other words, we have been waiting through the wrath of God for weeks now, and we have weeks yet to come. And so I thought that it would be prudent, therefore, this morning, to ask the question of why. Why do this? Why spend week after week after week focusing upon the subject of God's wrath, which will one day be poured out upon the earth 
and which is even now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Would it not be more profitable, not to mention more palatable, to focus upon the love and mercy for, Christ, or for sinners in Christ rather than the judgment and the wrath of God towards sinners apart from Christ? Conventional wisdom says that would be more profitable for the filling of the pews. But I question whether it's most profitable for your everlasting soul. I think that it is good and necessary to face up to the wrath and judgment of God revealed in these chapters because I think and I hope and I pray that these chapters will have a profound effect on us that would not be possible if we simply winked at these chapters and then turned our attention to more pleasant things like the new heavens and the new earth beginning in chapter 21. So before we launch into Revelation 16, I want to mention four beneficial effects of focusing upon the wrath of God. Here are four purposes which God has in your soul this morning and in the weeks to come as we will march through these chapters whose primary theme is wrath. Four effects, four purposes which I pray will come to pass in your life and in mine. Number one, the knowledge of the wrath of God makes us sober. That is, it changes our view of the world. It, it reorients us to reality. It awakens us from the drunken stupor of this age. Revelation 17 and 18 says that all the nations of the earth have become drunk on the wine of lust and luxury which it drinks from the golden cup in the hand of the great prostitute of Babylon. In other words, the whole world is intoxicated and stumbling in the darkness and seeking after the newest and latest pleasure. And the prostitute's goal is to keep us inebriated and thirsting for another drink from her hand. So we need texts like this to come along like a bucket of cold water to our faces. To sober us. So you can't possibly come here week after week after week and sit through sermon after sermon in Revelation 14 through 20 and then go home and continue to believe and act as if the most important thing on this Sunday afternoon is who wins the football game. Or what movie you'll see next. Or what clothes you wear. Or what move or what uh, car you'll buy or any other trivial matter of this world you sit through a sermon like this and if by the power of the holy spirit it has the effect that i hope and pray it will have upon you none of those things will matter you will have a pressing concern driving your heart and your mind and that is where can i find refuge from the wrath that is to come. Texts like this snap us awake and remind us that the world is not some alluring, glamorous actress, but is rather a debauched and disease-ridden whore. That's the image. That's the way that the Bible describes the world. Therefore, we need texts like this to call out to us, lest we die in her judgment. We need to hear from texts like this, Revelation 18, 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and share in her plagues. So texts like this make us sober. Secondly, the wrath of God makes us sincere. 
That is, it changes the way that we view ourselves. See, these texts, 14 to 20, these texts are binary. What I mean by that is there's only two options in these texts. There are saints and there are sinners. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. There are the followers of the Lamb and there are the worshipers of the beast. There's the river of life and there's the lake of fire. There is black and there is white and there's no gray anywhere in these chapters. And so, Revelation 14 to 20 forces us to examine which side of the line we fall on. There is no room in these chapters for the nominal and useless Christianity that pervades our culture where so many that populate the churches feel more at home in Babylon and yet imagine that they're somehow citizens of Zion as well. See, focusing upon the wrath of God forces us to realize that only those with a sincere faith will endure the tribulation of this age whose purpose... God's purpose in the tribulation of this age is to weed out the wheat from the tares. The knowledge of the wrath of God is essential in the development of a sincere faith. Notice chapter 14. Notice the way John immediately follows up the most terrifying description of hell found anywhere in Scripture. The smoke of their torment rises and day and night they have no rest. What does he say in the very next verse? Here is the call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. Where? In the revelation of the wrath of God, there is a call to the saints to say, persevere, keep believing, keep the commandments of God and your faith in Jesus. Third, the wrath of God makes us urgent. That is, it changes our view of others. I spoke with a church member a few days before writing this sermon who came to me looking for counsel because he had an opportunity to speak at the funeral of a friend who, to the best of his knowledge and discernment, died an unbeliever. And the counsel this particular member was seeking was how do I speak the gospel in such a way as to be clear yet respectful and compassionate? Now think about it. What lies behind that question? What would create within this man a sense of urgency such that he wanted to get it right? I mean, why not do what most pastors do when they officiate at the funeral of unbelievers, which is to say some nice things about the deceased, utter a generic prayer, and then sit back down? It's because this particular member knows that those who die apart from Christ enter into an eternity of suffering the relentless wrath of God. How does he know that? Texts like this make that clear. And it creates within us a sense of urgency that sends us out, compels us out to our friends and our family and our neighbors to plead with them to flee from the wrath that is to come. If there is no sense of urgency, it is because you don't really believe there is a hell. If you really believe there is a hell, you would feel a sense of urgency to help others escape it. So we need the wrath of God to create an urgency in evangelism. Finally, the wrath of God makes us tremble. That is, it changes, it deepens the way that we view our God. And that is good, and it is healthy, and it is holy, and it is right. The wrath of God leads to the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
the God of contemporary evangelicalism, the God that is being preached in churches all over Nixa this morning, is a safe God, a tame God, and in many respects, a false God. It reminds me of the conversation between the Pevensey children and the beavers about Aslan and C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Susan said, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Too many people imagine that they can appear before the king without their knees knocking. But that is not bravery and it's not holiness. It's silly. It's foolishness. If we would be wise, we must have a healthy fear of the Lord. And in order to have a healthy fear of the Lord, we need the wrath of God. We need to tremble for God, before God the King who is not safe, who is not tame, but who is good. We need to tremble. And therefore we need to give our attention to the wrath of God revealed in these texts. So we come now to Revelation chapter 16. And we come to the final, of, the final series of those numbered judgments in the book of Revelation. There are three total. There are the seven seals, Revelation 6. There are the seven trumpets, 8, 9, and 11. And there are the seven bulls of wrath here in chapter 16. Now I've previously made the case that these judgment cycles are to be understood as recurring throughout the entirety of this age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. It is an age of tribulation which is known in biblical terminology as the last days. It was the last days in the age of the apostles as evidenced by the way that they wrote. And it's the last days today and it's been the last days for 2,000 years. I'll not rehearse again the case for this, what is known as the idealist approach to understanding Revelation, but I'll just refer you to the sermons on those texts, the seven seals and the seven trumpets that are on our website. But there is one text that I want to draw your attention to as we, as we get into Revelation 16 this morning, because I think it has... I think it has bearing on the way we're to understand the seven bowls of wrath and the way that they fit within the whole scheme of Revelation. That passage is in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus gave his famous Olivet Discourse in which he spoke of the tribulation of this age and of his coming at the end of the age. And beginning in verse 6 of Matthew 24, Jesus said this, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place first, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And notice the last line, but these are but the beginning of birth pain. The beginning of contractions. So Jesus describes the national, political, geological, ecological, cosmological upheaval that will mark the duration of this age as birth pains. Contractions that will eventually culminate in the birth of the new heaven and the new earth at the return of Christ on the last day. The book of Revelation, in particular the seal and the trumpet judgments, describes these phenomena, this upheaval, national, political, military, geological, ecological, as 
judgments from the throne of God that are designed to bring the world to its knees. Just like he brought Pharaoh and all of Egypt to their knees with the plagues of judgment so many ages to go in the first exodus of his people. Now, just prior to the last exodus that is coming, God is doing the same thing. He's judging the world in preparation for bringing his redeemed out of Egypt, so to speak, and into the everlasting land of promise. But now that we come to the seven bowls of wrath, I think that we've entered into the active phase of labor. If all of these previous things are the beginning of birth pains, like those contractions that are 25 minutes apart, 20 minutes apart, 18 minutes apart, so on and so forth. Braxton Hicks contractions that have been going on for months, all in that last trimester. Now that we get to Revelation 16, we're in full-on active labor. We're nearing the end of the age. Now I'm not saying that these seven bowls of wrath are entirely future. I don't think that's the way that they work. You'll notice that the seven bowls of wrath are nearly identical in their form and structure to the seven trumpets of Revelation 8 and 9, which were clearly occurring throughout this age. Okay, I still think the time frame is between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, the, the biblical days of tribulation, the last days. I just think that the emphasis now is not so much on the entirety of the age, but on the end of the age. I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, the destructive effect of each judgment in Revelation 16 has intensified. In fact, it's been intensifying with each series, like the labor pains get more intense and more intense as they come on. In the seven seals, you remember that it was a fourth. The fourth of the earth died by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, and by wild beasts, Revelation 6.8. In the trumpet judgments, the, the figure was a third. A third of the earth burned, 8-7. A third of the sea became blood, killing a third of the creatures and destroying a third of the ships, verses 8 and 9. A third of the fresh waters became bitter, verses 10 and 11. A third of the celestial lights, the heavens, were darkened, verse 12. And finally, a third of mankind died at the hands of the demon horses and their riders, chapter 9 and verse 15. So a fourth with the seals, a third with the trumpets. Now that we come to the bowls of wrath, all restraint, all of that common grace is removed and the destruction and devastation is total. All of the sea becomes blood. Every living thing in the sea dies, 16.3. All the fresh water becomes blood, 16.4. The sun is not merely darkened, but now it scorches people with fierce heat, verses 8 and 9. The whole earth is plunged into an unnatural darkness that causes people to gnaw their tongues in anguish and to curse God, the God of heaven, verses 10 and 11. Paul said in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation groans together in the pains of childbirth as it awaits the day of redemption. I think... That in Revelation 16 with the seven bowls of wrath, we're now in that screaming phase of active labor. That's the first reason. Second reason, the flow of Revelation itself seems to suggest that the emphasis has moved from the entirety of this age to the end of the age. For instance, look at chapter 15 and verse 1. John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. These seven plagues we find out later in chapter 15 are the seven bowls of wrath. And then look at the end of chapter 16, when the seventh angel has poured out his bowl, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So the wrath of God is finished 
with the seven bowls of wrath. And then the remainder of Revelation deals primarily with the end of the age. 17 and 18 describes the fall of Babylon, the world city. 19 describes the wedding supper of the Lamb and the second coming of Christ on the last day. The second half of Revelation 20 describes the last battle and the final judgment. So the focus of Revelation 16 appears to be the end of the age. But it's related to the judgments that have been going on all the way through this age in the same way that active labor, the contractions found there, are the same in essence as the the contractions that have been going on all along. But, lest we become overconfident, let me give you this reminder. In Revelation, we're dealing in the realm of symbolism and imagery that are not literal descriptions of historical events, past or future, but rather are symbolic depictions of theological truths. These are visions, not videotape. And we should exercise caution accordingly. Alright, you still with me? Had to do a lot of introductory stuff in order to set up Revelation 16. What I want to do now, and in the time that remains, I want to give you four lessons for the last days. If it's true that this is focusing on the end of the age and is related to the entirety of these last days, what are four lessons that we can learn from Revelation 16 and the seven bulls of wrath? You see, this third series of sevenfold judgment depicts the same themes, salvation through judgment, using the same biblical historical backdrop, the Exodus plagues, the Egyptian plagues and the Exodus, as the trumpet judgments. So what I'm not going to do, I'm not going to walk through all of them in detail and say, this means this, and that means that, and this means this. I think that would feel redundant to you. Rather, what I think we'll do is step back, look at the whole chapter as a unit, and draw out four lessons for these last days. After all, John saw these visions, wrote them down, sent them to the church of the last days for a purpose. What might that purpose be? What would God have us to understand as the people of God here at First Baptist Nixa from Revelation 16 this morning? Four lessons. Number one, the last days will bring misery upon those who do not believe. Though it is difficult to discern the precise meaning of the symbols in these chapters, I know they're symbols. I don't know exactly what they mean. Seas and rivers turning to blood. Frogs that are demonic spirits performing signs coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the false prophet and the beast. 100-pound hailstones falling from the sky. These are symbols. But the main point of the symbols is abundantly clear. The judgment of God upon the sins of men will result in their physical, psychological, and spiritual misery. Both in this age and in the age to come. It is clear that the seven bowls of wrath are fashioned after the ten plagues of Egypt in the days of the Exodus. Let's walk through them real quickly and I'll show you where. The first bowl of wrath. Harmful and painful sores that come upon those who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image corresponds to the sixth Egyptian plague in which Moses took soot from the kiln and he threw it up in the air in the sight of Pharaoh and it became like a fine dust covering all of the land of Egypt and turning into open, festering boils on man and beast throughout the land. The second and third bowls of wrath. The sea, the rivers, the springs of water turning to blood and killing every living thing in the sea corresponds to the first Egyptian plague when Moses took his staff and he struck the Nile River with it, and the water of the Nile became blood, and all the fish in the Nile died, and no one could drink water from the Nile. The fifth bowl of wrath, the fourth one is the only one that doesn't have a referent. 
the fifth bowl of wrath, which is darkness upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom, such that men gnaw, what an image, they gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain. Verses 10 and 11. That corresponds to the ninth Egyptian plague when a pitch darkness, the phrase that's used in Exodus Exodus 8 is a darkness to be felt. A darkness so suffocating that you could feel it covered the land of Egypt. The sixth bowl of wrath. The three unclean spirits like frogs which emerge from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, verses 12 to 14, corresponds to the second Egyptian plague in which a swarm of frogs came up from the waters of the Nile and filled the land. Also note that the unclean spirits, the frogs, that come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they perform miraculous signs so as to mislead many, just like the magicians of Egypt perform their miraculous signs. Finally, the seventh bowl of wrath, which brought about thunder, lightning, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, to crush the people of the earth, verse 21, corresponds to the seventh Egyptian plague, which brought thunder, lightning, and, quote, very heavy hail, killing every living thing in the fields. It's a new set of plagues for a new exodus. It's what's going on. Now, We have made much of the fact, particularly when we covered the seven trumpet judgments, that what God is doing in this age is analogous to what He did in the age of the Exodus. Just as He brought His people up out of the bondage of Egypt through great acts of judgment, the plagues upon the Egyptians, upon Pharaoh and his kingdom, so in this age, God is preparing to bring His people, us, the people of God, up out of our bondage in the, king of the, in the kingdom of this world by bringing acts of judgment, plagues of judgment upon the king of this world, the beast, and his kingdom. Do you see? It's a mirror. What he did then in a local form, he's going to do at the end of the age and is doing even now in a universal and global form. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an Egyptian farmer in 1446 B.C. Think about how these plagues of judgment would affect you personally and your family. It's caused all manner of physical, psychological, spiritual agony. These plagues have devastated your crops, your livelihood. It's gone. They've killed your livestock They've caused your body and your mind unspeakable pain. They took your firstborn child. And you knew, because Moses has made it clear, that the God of the Israelites is the one who is cursing you and bringing these plagues upon you. Now translate that into the present. That's the way the people of this world should feel and will feel increasingly as we approach the end. I don't know exactly what all the symbols of Revelation 16 mean, but I do know that they mean something. That's the nature of symbolic language. Symbols have a corresponding referent, a link to reality. And I'm suggesting that the link between the symbol... And reality is the link of misery. Physical, psychological, spiritual torment for the people of this world who belong to the beast. In this age, all manner of anguish will befall the people of this world as harbingers of coming judgment and of the wrath of God that awaits them at the end of this age. But as in the days of the Exodus... There is still a door of mercy. There is still opportunity to repent, to bow before the God of Israel, and to march out of Egypt with the people of God. Most of the Egyptians back then, they stayed. 
Because they didn't believe. Their hearts were hardened like Pharaoh. But if you read Exodus 12.38, you will find that there were some. Some who under the influence of these plagues, they said, the God of Israel is more powerful than our gods. And so I will go out with the Israelites. I will, I will throw caution to the wind and I'm going out with them. And their God will be my God. And that's the merciful point of God's restraint in judgment in this age. It's an opportunity to repent. And so maybe there's some of you here and life is hard for you. Misery, sickness, anguish, pain, torment, and you feel it pressing down upon you like the plagues press down upon the Egyptians. Here's the point. Hear my voice. I am Moses to you this morning. The fact that you're not dead is evidence that you can still be saved from the wrath to come. But you must, you must leave Egypt with the people of God in the Exodus. You must repent and trust in Christ and come out, come out. You're going to hear the voice of God calling you in a few weeks. Come out of her, my people, lest you die in her plagues. There is mercy, there is grace, there is a refuge from the wrath that is coming. And what if, what if all of the torment and the anguish that God has inflicted upon you doesn't just happen? That God has inflicted upon you is His mercy in causing you to realize I'm under the wrath of the God of heaven so that you would repent and be saved. If that's His purpose for you this morning, then repent. Repent. Second, the punishment fits the crime. This is a hard point to swallow unless you have a thoroughly God-centered worldview. The plagues that befell the Egyptians, question. Was it good and right and just for God to do that? Was it good and right and just for God to inflict agony upon them like that? The biblical answer is yes. It was good and right and just for God to kill their crops, to kill their livestock, to kill their children. Why? Because they were a people who had rejected their Creator, turned from the one true and living God, and bowed before idols and worshipped false gods. Furthermore, they had enslaved the people of God. The Bible holds the people of Egypt culpable for their idolatry and sin and considers God's judgment upon them just. And the very same thing is true of God's judgments in this age upon those who worship the beast and his image. Look at verses 5 and 6. The angel declares this Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Then the heavenly altar, where the souls of those who had been slain for the testimony of God are to be found, where they are crying out for vengeance day and night, the altar testifies, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see it? The people of this earth have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. And so in return, God has poured out His bowls of wrath upon them. From the biblical viewpoint, there is no unjust suffering in this world. The punishment fits the crime. Third, the depravity of man is such that they will not 
repent. Not most of them. This chapter makes abundantly clear that man is so corrupt that like Pharaoh and the Egyptians before them, these plagues of judgment only further to harden their wicked hearts. Think of it. Men who refuse to acknowledge God and give Him thanks for His abundant provision turn around and curse Him when that kindness and provision are removed. That's wicked. It is wicked to never acknowledge God and say thank you for the sun coming up and the rain coming down and then to turn around and curse God when He fails to bring the sun up and fails to send the rains down. You see that? That's wickedness. And three times in this chapter, John asserts the people's refusal to repent. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Verse 11, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Never underestimate the corruption of man's heart. Were the common grace that restrains the wickedness of men removed as one day it will be, you too would cry out with the angel who declares it is what they deserve. And you would praise God for the grace that brought you to repentance for otherwise you would never have come. Fourth, Believers must live in a state of readiness. I recognized as I was writing this sermon, there was no way I was going to be able to deal with the entire chapter in one message. Simply too much for one morning. So we're going to return next week to Revelation 16 and we're going to focus upon the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath in the battle of Armageddon. But this morning, as we wrap up, I just want to draw your attention to one verse, and that's verse 15, the only verse in red in this chapter. The statement seems to come out of nowhere, which is why the ESV and the NASB put it in parentheses. They don't know what to do with it. It comes out of nowhere. In the midst of John's vision of the sixth bowl of wrath, he suddenly interjects this word of blessing and warning from the risen and exalted Lord Jesus which is addressed to his church. Okay, let me tell you what I think he's doing. In the middle of this chapter, in the middle of this section that is almost exclusively dealing with the wrath of God poured out in this age upon the earth, this is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to his church whenever this chapter is read or preached in this age. This is Jesus' word to us, His church, this morning. So if you were looking for some application to come out of this message, what is there for me, the believing saint who is rescued from the wrath of God here this morning? This is it. This is it. The exalted Lord Christ says to you, believer, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The sudden and unexpected nature of Christ's return is a common theme in the New Testament, beginning with Jesus himself during the last week of his life. Jesus often spoke about his return and of his disciples' readiness in relation to it in figurative terms. Let me read you three that come out of Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus warned us not to be like those in the days of Noah who lived reckless and dissolute lives as if there were never coming a day of reckoning. Matthew 24, 39, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus spoke of the faithful and wise servant who stays in a state of readiness and is prepared for his master's sudden arrival. 
while the wicked servant is caught off guard by the master's coming, is woefully unprepared, and is cut in pieces and cast out by the hypocrites in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, 45-51. He spoke of the wise virgins who made sure to have oil in their lamps and were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom while the foolish virgins had no oil and therefore no light. What's Jesus' point of that parable? Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now we'll return next week to the battle of Armageddon. For now, I simply want you to take note that Jesus' blessing and warning, which utilizes the imagery of a soldier up on the wall who's supposed to be on guard but is caught off guard and asleep and he doesn't have his armor on, when the battle suddenly comes. The warning only makes sense if Christ's coming will be sudden and unexpected. And if He comes in the midst of great temptation to fall asleep at the post, as it were. It only makes sense if Christ's coming will be in the midst of a supernatural drowsiness that pervades the visible church on the earth. And I think that's exactly what the sixth bowl of wrath is portraying. But that's next week. Here's the point. If Jesus told his followers 2,000 years ago to be ready for his imminent return, how much more ought we to be ready? In this age, we must live in a state of preparedness like a soldier on the walls of the city, alert, awake, armed and ready for the day of battle and for the arrival of the king. So my question to you is, are you alert and awake or are you asleep? Are you ready? How would Christ find you if He came today? Would He find you ready to meet Him? I'm going to close this morning with some gospel encouragement as we prepare to approach the Lord's table together. How do you go to the Lord's table out of Revelation 16? Here's how. Look up at 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Look at chapter 15 and verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now look at 16.17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. What? What is done? What is finished? The context clearly refers to the wrath of God. By the end of the seventh bowl, the wrath of God will have been finished against sinners upon the earth. The cup of wrath, chapter 14 and verse 10, will be empty. Babylon the great will have drained it to the dregs. Which means that the seventh bowl of wrath is a picture of the final judgment. In other words, throughout this age... In wars and rumors of wars and death and pestilence and famine and natural disasters and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and global nuclear meltdown or whatever it may be, the people of this age, the wicked of the earth, are sipping from the cup of God's wrath and at the end of the age, at the final judgment, they will drink it dry. But not so for the church, for the redeemed. For the believing saint. Because we have a different it is finished that is the banner that flies over this church. And that's the cry that came from the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. What is finished? Same referent. The wrath of God. The cup of wrath which Jesus in the garden begged the Father that He would not have to drink it. But which He submitted to drink in the place of those whom He loved. 
when he died on the cross, he drained the cup. And so for every one of us who have come to Christ and sought refuge only in His atoning blood, who trust only in His righteousness and His merit, there is no wrath left for us. Jesus has drained the cup. It is finished. So while the citizens of Babylon are draining the cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God and everlasting judgment, we will be drinking from the springs of the water of life in everlasting joy. And just as the wicked of the earth have a foretaste of the cup of wrath in all of the calamities and catastrophes which God pours out upon them in this age, we have a foretaste of the cup of blessing each and every time we come to the Lord's table. This is a foretaste of the everlasting joy and blessing which is to come. It is a reminder for us that Christ has drained the cup of wrath so that we might drink forever the cup of mercy and blessing. So come, taste and see that the Lord is good to sinners in Christ. Our Father, I thank You for Christ who rescues us from the wrath to come. And I pray if there would be any here who have no refuge, who are naked and exposed, and if you were to return today and the wrath of God were to be poured out upon them in full strength, they would have no shelter. I pray that you would awaken them from death to life and that you would raise them, that you would cause them to run to Christ for mercy. And for your people, I pray that you will make this supper once again a sign and seal of your mercy and grace towards us in Jesus. That when we hear the words, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, we would say, yes indeed. Yes it is. And it is finished. For me. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.